Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2? This is the text that we are um, memorizing, uh, and there were in the same country shepherds. Um, our children will recite it at the uh, Christmas Eve service, and, uh, but this, this morning we're going to study the first 14 verses. So would you stand as we read the word of God, which is eternally true. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, all of you with me, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You know that it's very difficult to have a home that doesn't divide. It's hard to have a marriage that doesn't divide, right? We all know this. Can we all admit that we know it? I was reading somebody recently who, I think it was Johnson, who said that, uh, that uh, if a man will hate no one else, he'll hate his next-door neighbor. <laughs> and so it's kind of a principle that the closest, closer we get to people, the more we're tempted to hate them, you know? And so one of the things that the church has to really work on is not dividing over things we shouldn't divide over, right? Uh, Years ago, I used to tell people that the the pride and and, uh, self-seeking of pastors was such that I believe that many of us could easily argue that every sanctuary should be, be painted black and could give you a biblical argument for blackness. And you say, well, what do you mean? I say, well, that's just how perverse we are. You know, if we could divide a church over the color of the sanctuary, when I went to my first church, you know, you meet the, co- the search committee, and they give you a nice meal, and then the next day they take you to show you their church. And we walked into the sanctuary, and immediately sort of the, the imperious woman on that committee, you know, there were humble women, but this one wasn't entirely that. She grabbed me and she said, what do you think about the color? And they had a little alcove at the back of the church. And what do you think of that color? And I knew immediately they were fighting over it, you know, because she wanted me to take a side. And I was in the delightful position of being able to say to her, ma'am, I'm colorblind. I don't think anything about the color at the back of that church, you know. And sure enough, we found out that they had just had some historic decorator come in and tell them how this would have been when it was first built back in 1850. And and some people liked his work or hers and some didn't. Now, why am I going through all that? The first thing I want you to notice about this text is that it ends with the song and the chant and the worship of heaven. Glory to God in the highest. And excelsis Deo, in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. Is that a wonderful song or what? And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. All right? I want you to notice that that song cannot be sung by Reformed Presbyterians. Now, why would I say this? Because... Biblical people must be united. We must not divide over secondary things. We must not do it. And so 
notice that this is the song of the angels, but that there are some of our brothers and sisters who say we must not sing this until we get to heaven. Do you understand this? And there's nothing that promotes unity more than saying where disunity is wrong. And so if your parents see you fighting as brothers and sisters, and they come in the room and they just say, would you love each other? And Tommy's beating little Aubriel over the head with his new baseball bat. It doesn't help much for the mother to just say, would you please love each other? You know, you should love each other. What you have to do is you have to say, stop hitting her on the head with a bat, right? In other words, there's, there's no good without the naming of the bat. And so we come to a text like this, and we just don't think anything of it. And then we come to the Christmas concert, and we sing, and, and then all of a sudden, I say to you, now, aren't you happy you can sing that? Okay? No, we don't say that the only song you can sing is what is in the book of Psalms. And I'm not being sectarian by saying that. I'm being peacemaker. All right? This is not something we divide over. Now, you ready? We'll get on to other things. What is something else that we see in this text? Well, what we see is that God, when he came, came as a child. But not just as a child, came as an unborn child. But not just as an unborn child, came as an embryo. Now, come on, people. You can never go through a Christmas without meditating on the fact that God did not, and it's one of my favorite lines in in the Christmas carols, God did not abhor the virgin's womb. Now, what does abhor mean? Abhor means God did not look down on or diss or, or, or just neglect. God did not turn away from in disgust. And you think about it and you think, what is a womb? And the minute I ask that, you can think, <laughs> something to be abhorred. You know, none of us want to go into somebody else's guts, right? And doctors get paid a lot of money to do it. When God was sent to us, he did not abhor the virgin's womb. God did not come to us, spring forth at 13 years of age when he didn't need his mother anymore and his primary allegiance transferred to his father. Does this make sense to you? God incarnate in flesh dignified every single moment of our existence and he dignified womanhood because God was an embryo and then, and then, and then, and nine months he spent in a virgin's womb, in Mary's womb. And God was pleased to be birthed just the way you have been. God was pleased to be nursed. And so we must never go through the Christmas season without noticing that when God came to us, he didn't come to us as a young man about to be bar mitzvah. He came to us as an embryo in his mother's womb. And the application of this is very, very clear. And we believe in making application in this church. The application of this is abortion is terrible wickedness. We must say every year there's no child who would more perfectly be a child to be aborted than Jesus. He was messing up his mother's betrothal. The father, being a righteous man, was going to put her away quietly. Nevertheless, he was going to put her away. Why? Because she'd become pregnant and he had not had sex with her. And so if you were to select a child to be aborted, this would be the child you'd have aborted. And Mary, in her godliness, 
was willing as an act of faith to be vulnerable. And then Joseph was told to not abandon her, right? Now, most of you are willing for me to make the application about abortion, but now I talk to you about the the birth control pill, and I talk to you about ECPs, Plan B. And let me tell you something. Jesus was not just a first or second or third trimester baby. Jesus was also a one-day-old embryo. The Bible tells us that Mary conceived by the Holy Ghost. And so when the Holy Ghost acted, that little one was, all its DNA was complete by the act of the Holy Spirit when it was a minute old in the womb. And we have great difficulty with that because we only, we only give value to things that we can empathize with and see and talk to. And so, you know, we can sort of think about unborn children as being valuable because, after all, we watch their mothers pat their belly and rub it and radiate warmth into the little one. And so the mother feels like there's something there. And so the dad looks at her and says, well, there must be something there. And then you see the little foot come up against the wall of the womb and you, oh, yeah, something's there, you know. But then what about before the child quickens? You know, what what about before the child starts kicking? Well, I mean, you can't relate to a child that's just there, like, unobservable. In order for me to validate you, I have to see you. I have to talk to you. I have to have you able to tell me how wonderful I am. And so Christians, Christians will have nothing to do with any form of contraception that ends the life of a human being. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. If you aren't going to do it to Jesus Christ, why would you do it to the precious flesh and blood he he gives you? We don't do that, right? Because we love Jesus. And we love the lives that he gives us. Now, what else is there here? Well, um, Isn't it something how God, being God, does not neglect the uh, most mundane and organic and uh, uh, real parts of life? Again, I'm going to go back and say, if you and I were going to do it, Everything about the birth of Jesus we would do differently. We would not have him be in a woman's womb. I mean, God can just have him spring forth a man. But that's not the way God did it. God humbled his son, not just at the end of his life through death on a cross, but at the beginning of life through going through gestation, right? It's interesting how often in Scripture God is pleased to show that he is going to do something incredible because of a conception and a birth. For instance, uh, think about Abraham and Sarah. God is going to spread his covenant line. God is going to make Abraham more than his descendants, more than all the sands of the sea. God had not been informed about population problems when he said that to Abraham. And so what does God do? God makes Abraham and Sarah wait and wait and wait and wait. And they have to wait so long for the fulfillment of God's promise that they end up trying to handle it themselves instead of waiting for God, right? And that's how Ishmael is born. Finally, when Sarah and Abraham are as, you remember how scripture speaks of it? That's right, who said it? As good as dead. Now, you know what that means, right? That's like Mary Lee and me, okay? In other words, beyond childbearing years, beyond fertility, as good as dead. That's when God sees fit to give this child. And so, what a miracle, right? With Abraham and Sarah. You know, Sarah's in the tent laughing. I'm going to have a child. (laughs) Yeah, right. Then we have Moses. Moses is born. You remember? He was under a death sentence when he was born from Pharaoh. And yet they, by God's grace, were able to find a way to get Moses to be adopted into the royal household. 
And so here we have Moses, this tremendous uh, gift of God's mercy to this little infant. Again, an infant who would grow up and would be a leader of the Israelites and would protect them and, and bring them out of bondage, right? And then we see Hosea. It's not something that's usually talked about in churches. I tried it once, and my whole extended family decided they'd never have me do another wedding. <laughs> but what a beautiful picture of the church. Hosea and, his, and, and Gomer, his wife, and their children. And so again, we have this theme of, 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 of sex, and of conception, and of birth, and of babies, all through scripture. And when Jesus is given to us, when God's son comes, we don't just have one miracle of birth, but we have two. So we have Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are the parents of John the Baptist, who is here to proclaim the way of the Lord, who, who is here to announce that Jesus, the son of God, is here. His parents were as good as dead also. They were beyond childbearing years. There was no hope they had of giving birth. And it's so ludicrous when the angel tells Zacharias that, he's, that they're going to have a baby that he's just like, yeah, right, you know? And so God says, okay, fine, fine. You will not say another word until that baby is born. And all of a sudden he's struck dumb. can't say a word until the baby is born. And that's God's rebuke at him for not believing that God is able to give life. It is he who hath made us and not we ourselves. And then Jesus. God, by his Holy Spirit, makes a virgin pregnant. It's very interesting that the Greek word brephos is the word that is used for the unborn children in the wombs of their mothers, both Elizabeth's baby and Mary's. Because you remember, Mary comes to Elizabeth's house, and you remember that Elizabeth's baby leaps in her womb when Jesus walks in. But it's not Jesus walking, it's Mary walking in. Mary's pregnant with Jesus. So Mary, pregnant with Jesus, walks in the house, and Elizabeth feels in her you know, and she says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, she says, my baby just le leaped for joy at the presence of his Savior. John the Baptist needed a Savior, too. And so the Greek word, brephos, is used for the baby in the womb of Elizabeth at that recognition, and for the baby Jesus, who's in the womb of his mother, Mary, there, and that's the same word, go back up, please, well, there, in verse 12, you will find a baby. It's the same Greek word. They don't change words. It doesn't go from a fetus to a baby. It's a baby in the womb. It's a baby out of the womb. All right. Now, would you flip up to the upper? Yes. Now, how did they get to Bethlehem? Well, the way they got to Bethlehem is some dude can't remember his name. Something like that. Now, what's my point? Well, you know, somebody named Joseph Stalin. Somebody named Barack Obama or George Bush decided they were going to tax people and there had to be accounting. That's it. It's the only reason we know their name. But do we know the name Jesus? Do we know the name Mary? Do we know the name Joseph? Yeah, yeah. And so this dude, some dude, I don't remember his name. He had a limousine, I know that. He said, we're going to have a census. We're going to tax, and all of you have to go back to where you came from. So Joseph had to go back to where he came from. Now, where he came from was 90 miles away from Mary's home. 90 miles is a long way back then. So Mary, being at the end of her term, all right, at nine months, decided that she'd stay home with her parents and give birth where she was secure. That is actually a hornet. If somebody can get that. Jason is, or 
All right, now we're going to watch it the rest of the sermon. Okay, yeah, yeah, Rob, do it, do it to us, do it to us, Rob. He who hesitates is lost. A faint heart ne'er won a maiden fair. Andrew, I'm banking on Andrew. (laughs) Andrew, you may go anywhere you want in this sanctuary, as long as it takes you. Just don't shoot it. (laughs) All right. It's back and forth. All right. As long as it's not in David's beard. (laughs) All right. And so uh, he declares there's going to be a census and the whole world must be taxed. And that means Joseph has to go. And then we have Mary. And Mary is from Nazareth, 90 miles away. So what does Mary do? Does she stay home with her parents because her mother will take care of her? No, she doesn't. No, she doesn't. What does she do? She does what every woman should do who has a good man. She chooses her husband over her mother and her father when it's time to give birth. Now, of course, I'm not saying that mothers shouldn't be in the room when when their daughter gives birth. My point is, think of this beautiful picture. It's not his child. This is not his son. And yet Mary would never dream of being anywhere but with her husband at the time of her greatest vulnerability. Now the application of this to a postmodern age is like hitting us in the face. Can we please reclaim Mary's femininity and Joseph's masculinity? Can we reclaim men who are strong and dependable? Can we reclaim women who are not ashamed of clinging to a responsible and dependable man? I mean, we, we jump right over this. And the Christmas, well, it's not about that. It's about Jesus. He'll save his from the sins. I say, well, yeah, why was God putting all this junk about going to Bethlehem in there? I mean, you know, who needs that? He'll save your people from your sins. Look, come on. It's a man, it's a woman, it's a baby. And not only that, but the rooms in the inn were filled, no vacancy sign out front, and so they're out back in the tool shed. All right? Why did God put that detail in? And then the really stupid detail is the shepherds. I mean, who's going to write a story and have the heroes of the story be long-haul truck drivers at a rest stop? Dude, can you be serious? Shepherds? And at night, when they're asleep? Well, listen, this is how God does things. And what this should show us is that God does not just have his eye on a sparrow. That sounds all romantic because everybody imputes personhood to animals today. But God imputes personhood to people that Greenspeace doesn't know, don't know, exists. And who is that, you ask? Motel maids and long-haul truck drivers. We want to talk about the people that are despised in our country today. I don't give a rip about blacks. Not a rip. Why? They'll do fine. You know who I'm really concerned about? I'm really concerned about people that live in double wides and haven't graduated from high school. There's the real prejudice in our country. You don't see any affirmative action at IU for people who have grown up in a crystal meth house. They don't know they exist. You don't see any affirmative action for people that chew tobacco and smoke cigarettes at IU. They don't know those people exist. And yet those are precisely the people that God chose to reveal his son to. 
And you say, well, they weren't doing crystal meth out with the sheep. And you're right, they weren't. I don't think they had crystal meth back then, right? But they were the despised. There's not a society on the face of the earth that the people that are respected are the people that have to be up at night protecting animals. Right? It's just self-evident. People that are respectable are able to sleep at night. And so here you have these men. There would have been a bunch of them. They would have been out on the fields. They wouldn't have had a comfortable bed. They wouldn't have been warm. They would have had their cloaks. You know, it's... And probably most of them were asleep because why would you have everybody awake all night when you can have just a couple who can wake you when real trouble comes? And what are they doing there? Well, they're protecting the sheep from wolves, from coyote, from whatever the predator was at the time. David killed a bear, all right? So there were animals that were serious threats, and they were able to be wakened on a moment's notice and protect the animals. Now, who else had kept watch over sheep at night? in that exact same place. The one that wrote all those psalms that we do sing. All right? Who was that? That was, that was David, the shepherd boy. David also was from Bethlehem. The two great kings of Israel are both from Bethlehem. All right? David was a shepherd, David was um, despised among his father's sons. How do we know that? Well, we know that because when the next king of Israel was going to be selected, Saul was banished, remember that? God turned his back on Saul, and then God said to Samuel, the prophet, he said, okay, I'm going to show you the next king, and I want you to go and anoint him. He sent him to the house of Jesse of Bethlehem, and then Jesse paraded out all his sons. He had eight sons. And he started with, you know, probably the tallest and best looking or the oldest, the eldest son, you know. And, and Jesse kept bringing sons to Samuel saying, surely this is the one God's chosen, you know. And God said to Samuel, it's not that one. And they, they, they were falling like flies. And they got to the end. And there was no next king of Israel. God said, no, I don't want any of them. And so then Samuel, is there you? I thought, well, there's David. (laughs) Well, bring him in. So they had to go out to the fields and bring David. And he was out keeping watch over the fox. So they brought David in. And guess what? David was God's chosen. And these things were just impossible for anybody watching to understand. Because, of course, you take the eldest son. And you don't take the eldest son. You take the second one, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh. But you don't take the youngest son. He's a screw-up, and all the rest of the family knows it. And God says to Samuel, the prophet, he says, man, what? Man, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, the heart. And so Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And man looks at the outward appearance. And so what man was looking at Jesus? Everything that God did in connection with his son was perfectly calculated to keep any man from looking at him. He was born to somebody from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth was the saying. It's like West Virginia. I hope hope none of you are from West Virginia, but... That's kind of, <laughs> in America, West Virginia. I don't know what it is in China, but America, it's West Virginia, right? Mississippi. Alabama. Kentucky. No, no. <laughs> what did he say? Oh, yeah, way off the south. Well, that's the whole point of the north. 
I mean, honestly, that's, that's the curriculum of every public school up north, <laughs> is how backward the south is. So anyhow, she's from Nazareth, and she's marrying a carpenter. She's pregnant out of wedlock. They don't have a room in the inn, so they're out with the animals. You know what that smelled like, don't you? Do you know what that smelled like? And this is the auspicious, the dignified, the regal. This is the Prince George arrival of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Man looks on the outward appearance, and there was not one thing about his outward appearance that would call attention to him at all. Not one thing. And then all of a sudden, the skies split open by the angels of God. And were they impressive? They were so impressive that everyone, these tough, gnarly men that faced down the lions and the wolves and the bears, Everyone was scared out of their wits. They were terror-stricken. And that's always the way it is when we sinful men face the holiness of God. In fact, it's not just what we will be when we stand before God. It's what we are when we see anybody that comes from the presence of God. Every time an angel appears, what's the response? The response of the person is to be terror-stricken. And then the angel says, as he said to Mary, what did he say? He said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And here the angels say what? Fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Now, what are the tidings of great joy? The tidings of great joy are not that Jesus came to whoop up on the Romans so that they didn't have to have such humiliation at the superior military and financial power of the Roman Empire. That was perpetually the problem with all the Jews is they wanted Jesus to be a different kind of king. They wanted him to be a civil magistrate, to be the king. They wanted him to ride in a, you know, behind a horse in a chariot. They wanted him to bring in the revolution that would finally succeed. There have been all kinds of messiahs who had come and tried to lead a revolt against Rome, and they all failed. You know? And so finally this man... He can still the waters, he can calm a storm, he can raise the dead, he can heal the blind, he can make the lame leap. Uh, There's no power. He can feed the 5,000. There's no power he doesn't have. They were constantly trying to get him to give them the thing they wanted, which was financial freedom, civil freedom, you know, this life, now my body. That's what they wanted. And Jesus gave them much for their bodies. He did heal them. He did feed them. And they loved him for it. But the principal gift he had to give us was not food and clothing and safety. The principal gift he had to give us is a release from the bondage of our sin. For he will save his people. You should give him the name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sin. You know that it's the calling of pastors to speak to people about sin, right? You know that. You know, a doctor speaks to people about sickness. A pastor speaks to people about sin. If a doctor doesn't speak to people about their sickness, they get angry at him because he's not validating their pain and he's not solving it. It's so perverse that when a pastor speaks to us about our sin, we get angry. So a good pastor doesn't speak to us about our sin, but a good doctor does speak to us about our sickness. And so the whole world claims to be celebrating the Savior who saves his people from their sins, but the whole world denies that it has sin that it needs saving from. Right? If you were in here for Sunday school, you remember Max telling us about his neighbor. And the neighbor saying, I'm fine. 
This, this, this man who would pin his wife up against the wall of his house as he was on his riding tractor because of his fury at her. And, and Max, as a young man, came over to witness to him about this Jesus who will save people from the... And the man said, I'm fine, I'm fine. In other words, I don't have any sin, and I don't need to fear God. You think about communism and socialism as an enterprise of the 20th century, the bloodiest, bloodiest century in human history. Although we're going we're gonna to see it one and raise it a hundred with abortion and euthanasia and infanticide. The numbers are on track for us obliterating all the communist empires with our bloodthirstiness, with little ones in the womb. And you remember, why did, they, why, did they, why did Stalin say he had to starve the colics, you know, the peasants, the farmers? Why did Stalin say he had to starve them? Well, because the revolution required it. And this is what New York Times journalists would come back and tell America, you know, that, that, that Stalin was, Papa, Papa Joe was this wonderful hero, you know. They would come back and write this in our newspaper. One of them got a Pulitzer Prize for writing this. They'd come back and tell us how wonderful Father, Papa Joe was. And why was Papa Joe having to kill all these farmers? Well, because the farmers loved their land. Is that a clue? <laughs> you know, any of you ever known a farmer? Have you ever tried to pry Mike Bowles off of his land? Impossible. I've given up. Mike, ollie ollie in free, okay? <laughs> farmers are committed to, you remember Pearl Buck, the missionary to China? You remember the name of her book? The good earth. And so Stalin had to kill these farmers because they loved their land. And what was Stalin trying to give them? Stalin was trying to give them what? He was completely a materialist. Denied the existence of God. And if you deny the existence of God, you deny the existence of the soul, and you certainly deny the existence of sin. Stalin had no concern for his people's central dilemma, which was that they would soon die and face a holy God. And he made this big show of being concerned for his people, and all he was concerned about was that they would eat. And you say, well, that's easy for you to say. And I say, no, it's not easy for me to say. It's not easy for me to say. There are many people in the church that you can spend your life talking to them about what sickness and pain they have today. And it's all a bait and switch. It's all their attempt to keep you from focusing on their sin. So the 20th century had all these intellectual utopians. And all of them were determined to give their people what they thought they needed, which was what? Food, clothing, shelter, but they did nothing for sin. As a matter of fact, they did everything they could to keep their people from ever thinking about God. And so, what about all the people that grew up being able to eat in Russia because of Papa Joe's killing massive numbers of farmers? Well, they died. And when they die... The Bible tells us it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And they faced the holy God, and, and Papa Joe had done nothing to help them. And this is not a political statement. America's just as bad. America does a much better job of feeding you than Papa John, Joe, but it also gives you um, pornography. It's a civil right. And iPhones that you can look at the pornography and the banality of five minutes waiting for a bus at the bus stop. But God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. Perish where? When? How? 
not perish, die, but perish before the throne of the holy God who must judge sin. And so this little baby was going to be called Jesus because he would save his people from his sin. And when these angels sang, these angels sang glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. What kind of peace? Was it peace from a hornet flying around the sanctuary? Was it peace between a husband and wife? Peace between Russia and uh, the Ukraine? No. It's peace with God. Peace with God. Peace with God. Listen, brothers and sisters. If you're not at peace, you can spend your life trying to find peace. You know, you can work hard to try to get your father and mother to love each other. You can spend your life trying to keep them from fighting. You can spend your life trying to do racial reconciliation. You can spend your life making sure that there's marriage equality. You can spend your life finding a middle way between the Republicans and Democrats, between Russia and Ukraine. You can spend your life being trained as, 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 as an arbitrator, you know, who will go in and help a couple or help a business avoid going to court. You can be a lawyer, a good one. You can be a policeman who arrests people who are uh, predators on others. But this is not the peace that Jesus brought. The peace that Jesus brought was the peace that your, your soul yearns for with God. It does not matter what your mother says to you. You will not die and stand before your mother. You will stand before God. And he's holy. And his holiness is not defined by your pastor. But it's defined by the character of God. And God's big. And he's powerful. And he does not need makeup. If you talk to men about women when women aren't around and they know it won't get back to their wives, men will tell you, we don't like makeup. I mean, I knew one man that made his wife put on red lipstick every time she got up, but he was kind of a twisted dude anyhow. You know, generally men like women's faces. Amen? You know? But women think they have to paint themselves. And men put up with it. You know, it's, it, women are always fighting amongst themselves, and they paint so that they can keep other women off their backs. <laughs> no, that's not in the Bible. <laughs> but listen, you think about how God brought his son into this world, and there was not any makeup, there was not any fanfare, there was not any instrument, there was not any king, any wealthy man that could not have been there to welcome Jesus when he came. But you know who God had welcomed him? God had an unwed mother, a poor carpenter named Joseph, and a bunch of shepherds, a bunch of long-haul truck drivers at a rest stop. God does not need our importance. He doesn't need our gifts. He doesn't need our pride. He doesn't need it. What is God pleased by? God's pleased by the heart of Mary. That's why we call her the Blessed Virgin Mary. Because Mary was humble. 
And when she was humble, God received the glory. And that's what God's really about, is defending his own glory. He doesn't want to have to share it with you. If you cling to your glory, God will not promote you. But if you are what used to be called self-abnegating, anybody ever heard that word in your whole life? It means somebody who's just like really the way Uriah Heep always acted like he was. You know, somebody who's always, I'm not here. That's what, that was Mary. I'm not here. I'm not here. And so God chose Mary. And now all generations call her what? Blessed. Blessed Mary. Would Mary make it onto the page of any magazine or into any website? Like, would TMZ keep track of her? You know, can't you just see them taking pictures in the stable? You know? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, you get into some translations issues here, but that's what the text says. Among men with whom he is pleased, and that's where I'll end. I'll ask you, is God pleased with you? You know how you know he isn't pleased with you? Not if you sin. You do sin. There's no question about that, right? How do we know whether God is pleased with us? We know that God is pleased with us if our hearts are at rest in him. Remember how Augustine, the third century, fourth century church father said, thou, meaning God, hast made us for thyself and our hearts are not at rest until when? Until they rest in thee. Not until, they, not until your mother finally gives you your approval. She'll never give you your approval. That's the whole point of being a mother. Okay? Mothers are given to you to keep you from being approved of. Oh, no, no, no. I don't really mean that. Don't get mad at me. Your mother, not mine. Well, no, no. Actually, <laughs> actually mine. She's up in heaven, and she does not approve of this sermon. I guarantee you. And I love my mother. Last night I was just thinking I miss my mother so much I wanted to call my mama last night. It's weird. All right. Your heart are not, is not going to be at rest because your mother approves of you or your dad or your grandparents or your pastor or your roommate or your husband or your wife. Your heart is going to be at rest when you see your sin and you understand that Jesus was righteous and that his righteousness covers your sin before the holy God. And that's all Christianity is. And when you see that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin, your heart rests in God. And you're at peace. You may lose your children. God may choose to take your children. And you may be alive and they're dead. You may have AIDS. You may never want a woman but only other men. You may have a wife who walks out on you. You may have a husband who walks out on you. You may have the most terrible sufferings that we won't speak about publicly here. But if you belong to God, you are clean. And your heart is at rest. You still cry. But you don't cry as those who have no hope. Because your hope is him and his household in heaven. And so, like I said, I want to end by saying, do you have the approval and the acceptance and the peace of God? Do you have it? Jesus said he came to bring peace, but he said not the peace that the world gives you, but a peace that passes all understanding. In other words, a peace that my parents could have after they buried their third child. National Merit Scholar at Swarthmore. Third child to die. My father's glory. 
and they had peace. Oh, they fought. I was there. I saw it. (laughs) But they kept saying that they never knew the love of God as clearly as they walked away from a grave of one of their children. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Goodwill to those that God approves of. And so I tell you, come to God. Come to him. Bring him your suffering. Bring him your fears. He says those who come to him, he'll never cast out. He will not turn you away. Okay? Can you come to this little baby? Or does this little baby threaten you? (laughs) It's kind of a joke, you know. How can a little baby threaten us? You know, I have some favorite stanzas of Christmas carols, but do you know what my all-time favorite is? Some of you can probably sing it with me. Oh, holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us this day. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us, we pray. We hear the Christmas angels their great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us, abide with us. Our Lord, Emmanuel. Musicians, come lead us in closing worship, please.